It's Tuesday at 8pm and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. So last week, Chef Paula McIntyre joined us from the magnificent Causeway Coast in Northern Ireland. One of Paula's recent guests was Charlotte Pike, a food and drink expert whose portfolio includes writing, teaching, broadcasting and consulting. I spoke to Charlotte yesterday morning to find out more about her food journey and what she thinks about the Causeway Coast. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Charlotte, great to have you on the best possible taste. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And I think we should start with your location. You're based over in the UK. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real delight to talk to you today. And yes, I'm talking to you from sunny Oxfordshire this morning. Tell us about that part of the country and and growing up. Is that where you're from originally? It's actually not. No, I'm from the West Country originally, and uh, I grew up in Dorset, and uh, I have uh, lots of family in in Devon as well. So, the West Country is really where I grew up. You know, um, visiting my grandparents on their farm in Devon, and I went to school in Dorset, and then I went to university in Exeter. So I'm a real sort of West Country girl <laughs> at heart, and actually, I'm living in Oxfordshire at the moment, um, which is is very very nice. Uh, but I'm living there temporarily because. I have just made a bit of a big life move, and um, we yeah. So we are trying to buy a farm. So um, life at the moment is sort of a home is sort of in a, in a temporary situation where we hope to, you know, realise our dreams really soon. That's absolutely amazing. So it is and not for the faint hearted. Tell us a bit about your childhood and, and what the journey was that brought you into the, the food sector. Well, I had a lovely childhood and I was very lucky. Um, as I say, I grew up in Dorset um, and my uh father's family are from Devon, neighbouring county, and my my dad's parents farmed, and uh, pretty much everyone else in the family did as well, so I've got a really long line of, um, of uh, farming in, in that side of my family, and so whilst we didn't grow up on a farm, uh, my parents both worked um, elsewhere and had you know different you know went to university and did different things um we used to visit my grandparents farm regularly spent holidays you know visiting them and it was wonderful it had a beautiful farm you know orchards animals uh you know cows sheep horses all sorts of things and uh, poultry it was lovely a really beautiful part of devon and um so i had a really lovely fortunate childhood really in a sort of you know semi-rural west country and food was always really important to my family um i have you know some of my earliest memories involve food and i think it's probably just down to sort of pure greediness <laughs> but uh, I, it was always important to my family and to my parents and um actually my grandparents who farmed um were possibly a bit less interested in food I think because they were quite busy, but they always had amazing ingredients, many of which they, they produced themselves. You know, they had the milk, the eggs, you know, lovely meat, lovely fish coming in once a week. So they had a fantastic diet. Um, and my mum was really interested in cooking and 
great thing she she did for me uh, that I'm really, really grateful for is she always allowed me to have go in the kitchen. And she worked um, a lot of the time I was a child. So she was busy and, you know, time for. And uh, she always used to let me have a go. We used to make dinner together and she used to allow me the space to just go into the kitchen and, you know, play around with things on my own, make cakes on my own. And just that sort of um, freedom really did have a lasting impact on me. Fantastic. And you went off to university then. And what did you study at university? Yeah, I went to Exeter and I read French and Spanish and I went to live in Paris and Madrid and uh, worked in both countries. I had I worked for Air France in Paris and then I worked for Christie's in um, Madrid, which was just amazing. So it was a truly wonderful experience, actually. I'm immensely grateful for that. And at what point then did you decide to go down the chef route? Well, it's sort of a bit, it was a bit around the houses because I was always really interested in cooking as a child. And I can remember being at school and being asked, you know, to to write about my hobbies, for example. And I always, you know, cooking was a hobby, but it almost felt like it wasn't a thing then. You know, it's it's changed culturally enormously since, you know, since the 80s, 90s. And, and I think cooking really is, uh, seemed to be a really valid uh, hobby and also career. I mean, I did think for a time when I was a child that I would be quite interested in being a chef, but I never wanted to be a restaurant chef. I didn't really want to work those sorts of hours and to do sort of um, possibly repetitive cooking. So I parked it and um, it was always, you know, a great interest of mine. I never used to read um, fiction. I always used to read my mum's cookbooks. I used to take them out to the library. So the interest was there, but how to make it a career sort of followed later on. And actually, I went to work in um, the city after university. I went to JP Morgan and Prudential. And um, I really wasn't very happy at that time. And it made me think, well, what can I, what can I do with my life that really would excite me and give me that spring in my step when I get up in the morning and it, it it all came back to food and so I decided to to make it my career and it it took me you know a bit of a while to find my way and I went about it in a sort of slightly um reverse sort of career path but I'm so glad I did it you're a lot younger than I am so I have a good few years on you Charlotte and whenever I would have been going to university there, there weren't really many options in terms of doing um, that that culinary arts degree, for example, which which is there now. And I suppose when you grow up in a household where many of us are steered towards university, whenever those courses aren't there at that time, it, it, it does mean that you maybe end up studying something that, yes, you do enjoy and you have that whole student university experience, which is very important, but it maybe doesn't take you directly into that career path that that you want to follow. So it's always great whenever, like I did a business French degree, you've done languages. It, it does give us a bit of flexibility then whenever it comes to, to choosing the path that we want to go down. But obviously you find yourself with your languages degree, 
you worked in the city um, in the financial division, I presume it was. So here you find yourself at a crossroads where you want to do something with food. So what did you do then in terms of training? Just, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you were a brilliant cook even without the training, but sometimes we kind of need that tick in the box to, to give us that formal education, more for ourselves maybe than, than for other people. I completely agree with everything you said. And and actually, just to take a slight step back, you know, I didn't really get that much sort of careers advice. And, my, you know, my parents were like, we've got to do a sort of, you know, professional sort of, you know, respectable degree. And, you know, it, things are really different now. And that's a, that's a great thing. And uh, I actually, my, I made my first move by starting a small food company. So uh, I decided to set up a free farm food company because my partner Tony developed multiple food allergies and um, he really, really, we really struggled to find food that he could eat and I was you know, experimenting, trying to make uh, nicer things for him to enjoy and that went quite well and I turned that into a small food business that won, um, uh, actually won an award for my cooking and that was very gratifying so that was just a really small business and I started that off while I was still working in the city and I spent time on it in the evening so that was a sort of that was a small first step that I could combine before taking the leap then I had the opportunity to do some online food writing for a major magazine and again I combined that with um with my little cooking project with my food business and still working uh and quite quickly, I managed to get um, signed with a literary agent. And that led to me getting my first book deal, which was for a three book deal, which was really amazing. It was a three uh, cookbook series. And really, at that point, I thought, you know, it, I need to, well, that's a huge project. And also, it's sort of now or never, really. And I just knew it was time to, to take the plunge. And I was lucky that I had a support network to help me to do that it you know it is a big risk but i started my food business when i was 25 and i got my first book deal when i was um can't do math 27 i think so uh you know i was still quite young and i just thought i really i really just have to do this so i wrote my first three books and they were published and they did really well and then they were published by um a woman who also published uh, Rachel Allen's books and so I, I actually had Rachel's books and I loved what she did and I've been thinking about Rani Malou for a long time and I remember just driving one day and thinking you know a couple of years have passed and I was thinking I really want to do that course I really want to go to Rani Malou and I just you know it's it was a lot of money and big time commitment and I was just driving on one day and I pretty much pulled over the car and just said to myself you've got to do this and I rang up and booked better there <laughs> and so off I went to Bally Malou and I did the 12-week course there uh, down in Cork so I did my sort of professional training once I'd made a move into food professionally so hence me saying it was a bit of a sort of um you know back to front approach but that's that's the way around like I now let's rewind to the three book deal Charlotte because you're making that sound that it all happened very easily but there must have been a bit of work to bring that to life obviously there's a lot of work in writing a cookbook but to get a three book deal like there's people listening now going oh my god how did this all happen yeah I know it's it yeah it it was 
an unbelievable start really um i teamed up with my uh, literary agent i actually approached um the person who was my then literary agent uh with an idea um i actually have always loved cookbooks and i had a couple of ideas percolating so i thought no i'm actually going to sit down and write a proposal which i did and then I bought the writers and artists handbook and was looking through that and looking at books that I really liked and who had worked on them, creative team. So I, I remember staying up really late, listening to me loud music in my bedroom, <laughs> tapping out this proposal. And I thought there was something in it and sent it off. And my then agent said, uh, you know, she got back to me and said, I really like you. I like what you're doing. Um, that proposal never actually became a book. She proposed the idea that then became a free book series. But I think that's the thing about writing cookbooks. It's um, a sort of two-way street. You know, you have the ideas and the potential to deliver the content. And sometimes the ideas adapt to fit with what can sell in the current market. So that's, that's how it happened, which was quite amazing. I remember I just didn't sleep the night I was told that not only I'd got my first book deal, it was a free book deal. It just was ecstatic. It really was a very special moment. It's an incredible um, success story. And I know there are people listening that would love a book deal themselves. And the important thing for them to note and remember here is that you were proactive in pursuing that and making that happen for yourself, which is um, is so important and tell me about your literary agent and how you got her yeah well quite simply I I wrote to her because I noticed that she was representing clients whose work I really admired um, clients from UK and Ireland actually and I loved their work and it was just as simple as that I saw that she was involved in representing these people I loved what they were doing I thought that she and I could be a good fit and, and wrote to her. It really was that simple, which makes it sound easy. It's not easy, but I worked hard on trying to get my sort of offer right and made sure that I had something that I felt was really interesting to send to her. Um, and that did catch her attention, actually. So, you know, it took, it took quite a while. It probably took me about two or three months working pretty much. You know, I used to work late every evening I came home from work. You know, it wasn't just a fluke. I did really focus on trying to make it happen. And very passionate about it as well and about doing the book. So tell us about the three books and what sort of themes or recipes um, make them. Well, they were um, a, a series of cookbooks for university students called the Hungry Cookbook. The Hungry, Hungry Student Cookbook series. And the Hungry Student Cookbook series, it contains three books. There's a general cookbook, a vegetarian book, and a baking book. And that idea came from my agent because she said, she told me, she thought there was a gap in the market for um, something to cover student cooking in a slightly more updated way and to be written by someone who had themselves been a relatively recent graduate. And, you know, it wasn't sort of written, but the sort of, I don't know, your mum's perspective. Um, so for a younger author. And so she suggested that idea to me. I love that idea. And um, I felt I had those material to put together. So that's what it was. And actually, it's been a great move because whilst, you know, you know, 
I have I'm obsolete now. Those books still do really well each year. It's a market that renews itself each year. And actually, what's so interesting is I receive quite a number of emails every week from readers who wouldn't fit the student profile. You know, people who are, you know, um, busy mums, uh, teenagers cooking, um, people cooking in caravans on holiday, um, people who have been recently widowed. You know, really wide selection of people who find those sort of simple but reliable recipes very useful for their life and I find that unbelievably gratifying that is genuinely one of the very best parts of writing cookbook to me is when you hear from someone that you want to help them and you know your recipes are ones that they actually have woven into their repertoire it is just so special and I'd say in the current cost of living crisis, they're probably relevant to lots of different people now. And you've actually transported me back in time to when I was a student and I was gifted a cookbook. It was called Grub and a Grant. <laughs> yes. Which I'd totally forgotten about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But there's totally a place to that. And I think, I think... It, it's very easy to feel confused and overwhelmed when it comes to food and everyday cooking. And, you know, I talk to a lot of my friends now, my contemporaries, you know, have young children, for example, they're juggling work, you know, they just don't have the headspace to, to focus on planning anything elaborate. And I think it's sometimes easy to think that, you know, simple cooking isn't sort of worthy or good enough, but it absolutely is. I absolutely believe that in the importance of having a, good quality home cooked meal even if it's really simple um to eat every day will do the world good you know mentally and physically so there is absolutely a base for it and i i just yeah it, it appeals to people from all walks of life in all different circumstances and i'm really proud of that and so you should be and i'd say that having the cookbooks then opened up a number of other doors for you and i know you're a member of the food guild over in the uk yeah, that's it. Yeah, it did. And um, also going to Ballymaloo opened quite a lot of doors and opportunities. Um, I joined the UK uh, Guild of Food Writers when I got my first book deal. And then I have been a member ever since. I was uh, vice chair for a couple of years and chair for a couple of years, I, at which I, a position I left in November 22, after two and a bit years as my chair, which was an immense privilege with um, about 600 members in the UK nationally um but it did open Riley Malou opened other doors uh professionally without question I did um I worked as a private chef after working at Bally Malou I found that being able to say that I was Bally Malou trained gave me um huge selling point actually um so I sort of worked as a an international private chef in you know sort of very small scale but you had a small number of clients who I do really interesting things with and you know they loved and valued the fact that i had been there and shared that ethos which meant that i was able to cook really lovely food using lovely ingredients for really nice people who cared which is a real privilege um, i also started teaching after i went to Bangalore and um, set up my own little cookery school and was head chef at a cookery school in birmingham for seven or eight years and so that gave me um, so many more possibilities as well and you know, I wanted to train to be able to have that expertise and understanding. And I sort of went to Bangalore because I wanted to join the dots. You know, I knew how to cook. 
but I really wanted to understand it and have that really solid foundation. And um, it really helped to give me that. And do you write for other publications now? Yes, I do. Um, as a freelance uh, writer, I I haven't written regularly for many publications. I have a monthly a monthly recipe column for uh, Countryman's Weekly, but I do write occasionally freelance for um, food magazines. I've done quite a lot of stuff for BBC Good Food in the last year and um, magazines and newspapers as well. So that isn't the main focus of my activity. It mainly is um, book-based, but it's always nice to do bits and pieces here and there. And of course, your connections with Ireland doesn't stop at Ballymaloo because you were actually a judge last year on the Irish Food Writing Awards. And the category that you judged was the emerging voice in Irish food writing. So you got to read lots of, of, of different Irish food writers pieces. Oh, it's just wonderful. I have uh, so much respect for what's going on in the food writing world in Ireland. I follow it closely and I hugely admire the great talent um, across the board in Irish food writing and indeed cooking and indeed food production. I have to say that for me, there is nowhere in the world that is as good as Ireland for food in every respect. I just think it's so special. And uh, yes, I've judged um, the last two years since the awards were set up. And it's been a huge, huge privilege. Um, the quality of the entries has been outstanding. Um, it's been fantastic to celebrate so much innovation and um, quality in food writing. Not an easy task to judge, I must say. Um, this year's winner and emerging food category was John Mulgrew up in uh, Belfast doing brilliant things and uh, yeah it's been a huge huge privilege and of course a delight to get over to Dublin to celebrate the awards the last couple of years it's been absolutely brilliant and you know hats off to Suzanne and Paul for starting that from scratch which you know having been involved in organising the UK um, Food Writers Awards for the last what eight years or so it's such a huge undertaking and for them to get it going from you know from um nothing really it's extraordinary and one of your fellow judges is andy clark who was on the show a few weeks ago and yourself and andy and joanne cronin who was on last week's show all enjoyed um a fantastic press trip to northern ireland recently starting up in the Causeway Coast for Paula McIntyre is based and Paula was on the, the show last week as well. So tell me about that experience of the, the, the Taste Causeway part of Northern Ireland. Oh, it was just a joy. So I haven't been to the North Coast since um, 2017, haven't been to Belfast since 2019. Uh, so it was just such a delight to 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 return there is such quality in the food uh scene up there in terms of uh, product innovation um the um, farming um and of course cooking as well and so not only is it a totally beautiful part of the country the quality of the food and drink is absolutely outstanding there are so many producers large and small doing really really special things i was so spoiled actually because when i arrived um 
we drove up to the north coast and this the, you know the clouds parted and it was just the most beautiful day up there two days you know blue sky i put some photos on instagram and someone commented it looks like the california coast but it is just so spectacular and i was able to enjoy the views in the most perfect conditions uh the food there is just wonderful everyone was laughing at me because i always come over with an enormous suitcase and i know it's ridiculous if i'm saying for sort of two nights but there are so many lovely things that i want to buy and take back with me to enjoy so i always come with a giant empty suitcase which looks absurd but frankly it's 100% necessary in my view so we had a brilliant time um there's so many good things happening there are loads of brilliant businesses um obviously it's um designated slow food um area and there are so many businesses doing producing wonderful food with such integrity i find it really refreshing and exciting i thought you were going to say that you brought the big suitcase because you know you need clothes for all climates when you come from <laughs> rain jackets and wellies well, and, well, yeah. and boots and t-shirts <laughs> and everything tell us about some of the ingredients you took back oh gosh well I, there were quite a few actually um i did buy um some meat and some meat fish and cheese so i did get some meat from peter hannon because i think that's excellent uh i got some smoked salmon from north coast smokehouse which is a hot smoke um glenarm salmon which is absolutely delicious made in valley castle i Brought back some sourdough from Ursa Minor, amazing, amazing bakery in Valley Castle. They've also got a lovely pantry in there, so they're selling a great selection of um, fresh and Irish artisan food products. So I did stock up things like um, White Mouse was one of my favourites as well. I always buy some of that when I come over. Um, Causeway Coffee, doing amazing coffee. I've got some whiskey from Bushmills, got some gin from Giants um, Distillery. They're producing lovely basalt gin, which is really beautiful um lots of lovely jars of preserves i mean there's just there's so much honestly i came back with just tons of it butter i got some abernethy butter i love the dulse butter personally you definitely need it to bring <laughs> the suitcase well listen it's been great to catch up with you today we wish you the best of luck with the farm purchase and hopefully you'll come back on and talk to us about that would there be any chance there might be a little bit of a fly-in-the-wall documentary TV programme following you with that whole process and getting up and running? Wouldn't that be fun? It would. Get pitching, Charlotte. No better woman. Continued success. And thanks so much for telling me all about it today. Thanks a million for having me. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. And if anyone wants to find out more, you can find me on Instagram, which is uh, Charlotte Pike Food, Twitter, Charlotte underscore Pike underscore, and my website, charlottepike.co.uk. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM.